BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Your Ben Jarofsky Show for Wednesday, December 15th, is brought to you by SEIU Health Cl- <laughs> Let's try that again. SEIU Healthcare, Illinois, Indiana, the Chicago Federation of Labor, the Chicago Teachers Union, and Chicago Reader. ChicagoReader.com for all things there is to know the city of Chicago. Where to go, what to do, what to eat, what kind of pot to smoke, what to drink, and so much more, including columns from our very own Ben Jarofsky. ChicagoReader.com. If you want to help out this program, you can. ChicagoReader.com forward slash Jarofsky. J-O-R-A. V is in victory. SKY. It is Wednesday, December 15th, and pre-recorded from my apartment and his Airbnb in lovely California, this is the Ben Jarofsky Show. Today on the program, legendary Chicago journalist Monroe Anderson... And now your host, Chicago Reader columnist, Ben Jarofsky. Yeah, hello everybody, Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this uh, 40 Jobs in a Mule Wednesday, and here's why. Great, uh, compelling story by the BGA, Better Government Association. A little shout out to the BGA. Uh, I got a tip off yesterday on this story. Yeah, me, I got a tip off. Uh, I'm going to give a shout out to uh, Nina Fuentes, who is the uh, marketing director of the BGA. She goes, you're going to love this story. This is a very powerful story written by the great Alejandra Cancino. And it's about uh, the CHA and the city of Chicago and Mayor Daly. Remember him, millennials? That was that mayor that was in office when you were growing up back in the 90s. You remember him, millennials? He was mayor right when I moved into the city, I think. What year did you move into the city? 2011. So I think Ron was like just like going in, right? Uh, well, <laughs> it depends what time of year. Uh, I, I mean, I hate to be like a detail guy. March. You know, March. I think so. Ron may have just gotten elected, right? Uh, yes. If you move to town in March of, tw- wow, March of 2011. That's wow. Damn. You've lived here a while now. Yeah. A decade. You've been here 10 years. <laughs> uh, let me do the math. Hold on, D. Just. Up oh, 10 years. Yep. And uh, so anyway, yeah, you remember that mayor. You, uh, your parents loved him, millennials. Your parents loved him. As a result, you loved him. This is something curious about millennials. Uh, the, and I give them a lot of credit for having evolved as a people. But when they were growing up in the 90s, I've talked to millennials about this. I've shared this with them. And in the O's, they didn't really, qu- I mean, obviously in the 90s, they were so young. But in the O's, as they're heading into high school, they didn't really question what their parents told them when it came to local politics. They just kind of like followed along in their parents' footpath. Well, And their parents were most likely for daily. Everybody in the city of Chicago was for daily except for like 10 people. And you're talking to one of them right now, D. Okay, so there's just like, I am going to exaggerate to tell a story, but it's it felt that way. It was like overwhelming support. Uh, for Mayor Daly. And I never really understood it. Uh, I never really, I just never got on the Daly bandwagon in any way. And I remember 
when my youngest daughter was in high school, and this was, the, I think I may have said this to you before, D. This was just a huge revelation for me. She uh, went to Whitney Young, and uh, I figured, well, Whitney Young would be a school where there would be a lot of support for Dorothy Brown, who's running against Mayor Daly. This is back in 2007. And so they did. I figured just this, there's a lot of black kids, uh, middle class, upper middle class, black families. I figured Dorothy Brown would have any base. This would be her base. And so I expect when they did the student vote, uh, who do you support students, Mayor Daly or Dorothy Brown? I thought Dorothy Brown would get a significant number of uh, votes. Negatory. That's when I realized really how isolated I was. It was overwhelming support for Mayor Daly. And this is back in 2007, as I said. And so, again, these are students who are just following what they hear at home, you know, and they're not really paying attention uh, to local politics. And so their notion of Mayor Daly is, oh, yeah, he was a good mayor. He cared about people. And I'd be like screaming from the top of the mountains, this guy's taking money that's supposed to go to poor people and giving it to rich people. Anyway, so the reason I'm having this daily uh, Mayor Daly memory uh, trip is that uh, a great story by the BGA, Better Government Association, uh, by Alejandra Casino, and she will be a guest tomorrow. Uh, so I'm looking forward to having taken the deep dive. But this is all about the uh, relocation, the destruction of the Cabrini Green uh, housing complex on the near north side of Chicago, uh, and the uh, promises made to the residents who live there. Folks, this is really ancient history. D, I don't know if, if you even know this, because 2011, it may have mostly been gone. Believe it or not, at uh, Clark and Division, uh, just west of Clark and Division, there was a very large Chicago Housing Authority uh, complex yeah. called Cabrini Green. I used to work right by there. Like, I worked on, like, Halstead and Division. So I would see it. Where'd like, you work? Uh, Blockbuster? No, no. Uh, it was called People Scout. It's on, well, it's still a place. It's called, it's on Kingsbury, I think. Yeah. 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 I used to work there. And I lived here one, in 2007. Uh, I lived here for a year and I worked at that same place. So I remember seeing Cabrini Green and then I moved Cabrini Green. Then I moved back and they were like in the process of tearing it down. Tearing it down. Yeah. This, that process began in the 90s. Uh, the plan for transformation, they called it. Uh, and when they talked about it, they never talked about it in terms of real estate interests. They never talked about it in terms of how much money developers would make redeveloping the land. They were never, they never talked about it in terms of money, money, money. They talked about it in terms of the compassion they felt for the residents to live in Cabrini Green. D, I'm not making this stuff up. This is the history of Chicago in your time, listeners. They talked about we're tearing down Cabrini Green because it's best for the residents of Cabrini Green. And when we tear it down, we're going to make sure that all these residents who used to live in Cabrini Green get to come back to the neighborhood. We'll, we'll send them, we'll give them a little voucher, okay? They go some, stay somewhere else, and then we're going to redevelop the area. And when we redevelop the area, we're going to make really beautiful housing, and then we're going to invite the residents back. Okay, that's what they said. Uh, and then they also said, we're going to create thousands and thousands of construction jobs. <laughs> God, this stuff. The stuff your mayors tell you people and you nod your head. And they said, oh, I'm going to get this right. They were going to create how many jobs are they going to create? 2,500 jobs. That's 2,500 jobs. That was the promise. Cabrini Green residents were promised 2,500 construction jobs. Well, Alejandra Casino, uh, 
investigative reporter for the Better Government Association has spent the last, I don't know, several weeks, months, who knows how long. We'll find out tomorrow when she's on the show. Taking the deep dive into this, 2,500 construction jobs were promised to residents of Cabrini Green. She went through all the documents. God bless her for doing this. <laughs> what a diligent, tough task that is. Adi, take a guess. 2,500 jobs promised. How many, how many jobs do you think were actually delivered? Four. Wow. They did better. <laughs> they did better than you. <laughs> 40. Oh, I was just off by a zero. <laughs> what a city, ladies and gentlemen. Actually, my mic went out. I said 40, but you uh, just heard four. We, we, could, ch- we could change that uh, uh, on the uh, editing process. Just a little here and there, change this and that. 40 jobs. I mean, it's embarrassing. 2,500 jobs promised, 40 delivered. 40 delivered. And you wonder why voting, what, what, what is the voting? 35% of the people vote? Because you deliver so many lies, Chicago. Nobody believes you. We like Mayor Daly. We love Mayor Daly. <laughs> All those millennials. Oh, I heard my parents talking about him, and they like him a lot. Listen, man, everybody knew what that plan for transformation was about. Everybody knew that if you thought about it, you know, just what uh, what it was all about tearing down Cabrini. I'm just going to say something that's very cynical uh, and probably explains why my uh, I exist on the margins of journalism in Chicago, but I don't believe a promise ever made by any mayor of the city of Chicago when it comes to helping poor black people. I just don't believe it. I've been in this town since 1981. I've seen one promise after another delivered and one promise after another broken. And we talk about this on national politics. When uh, in 2016, when Bernie was running against Hillary and a lot of young people rushed to Bernie. And I remember people of my generation, Dems of my generation, go, why are they doing that? I don't understand that Hillary has spent her whole life waiting for this moment. And she's so qualified by these young people. They got mad at the young people. And then, and then well, the young people would say, well, he, he's, he's promising health care. We don't have health care. He's promising student aid. We're broke because we owe so much money on student aid. And he's promising to do something about climate change. Hello. When we're your age, baby boomers, they're like may not be on earth. So he's like saying everything we need. And then the boomers would say to the, uh, the young people, oh, those are just promises. He can't deliver. <laughs> yeah. We, so give up all your dreams, folks. Just vote for somebody. Just vote for somebody because what? Your parents tell you to vote for them. They, but your parents are so used to not getting politicians to do what they want to do. You're just going to follow that. I remember how many young people were for Bernie, how irritated. And I still know some baby boomers, D, still mad at uh, millennials who didn't fall in line and vote for him. Still mad. (laughs) Hope you're happy now. So, you know, that's like a national uh, example of what went down on the local level with things like Cabrini Green. And that's just one example, ladies and gentlemen, Cabrini Green. But uh, Cabrini Green is, again, sits on the Gold Coast. It was completely surrounded by the 1990s. to upscale, mostly uh, white development for white people was just surrounding it. 
And it was like, you could see the brain. You, you could just imagine the conversations that the powerful people in the city of Chicago were having. Like, we got to get this thing out of here, out of here right now. It's just like, it's deterring development uh, in this very valuable corner of the city of Chicago. So we got to get rid of it. How are we going to get rid of it? Hmm, I know. We'll say we're doing it for the good of the people who live there. Yes. <laughs> Whoa. Do you think they'll fall for it? Well, they really won't have a choice since we'll be moving them out. (laughs) And then they went with their backup plan just to make sure they put a target nearby. (laughs) People love Target. Yeah. I know a lot of uh, people who uh, used to live in the area and they're like, man, we could have used a Target back in the day. (laughs) Right. Well, they waited till you guys were moved out. Then they put the Target in. Ah, your city of Chicago. By the way, and that's the area. Rahm Emanuel, and one of the most cynical moves uh, and from a very cynical man, this was after he'd been closing uh, schools uh, all over uh, the West and South sides and because of falling enrollment, and which was falling to a certain degree because they were moving people out of communities uh, like Cabrini Green all over the city. Uh, so uh, oh, all of a sudden I find myself doing Obama. Uh, anyway. Uh, so uh, after having moved so many people out, uh, they had enrollment fell, he closed schools. He proposed to open a new selective enrollment high school, not far from where the old Cabrini Green was. And he was going to name it Barack Obama High School. It was like, wow, what a cynical move. You move all the black people out. You close schools in black neighborhoods. And then you open a selective enrollment school, which will probably be mostly white people. And like, just to make the black people feel happy, you name it for Barack Obama. And I could just see the brains. D, I could see them. I go, they won't be able to protest it, boss, because you're naming it for Barack Obama. And Ron would be like, God, that's brilliant. Anyway, so that's uh, Cabrini Green. They never did build the high school, by the way. There was so much outcry. Like, how could you, even if you, I mean, again, See, you guys make fun of me. You always say, oh, I'm shaming Chicago voters. I have a higher estimation of the intelligence of Chicago voters than the people you represent. I never once thought that any Chicagoans, black or white, would be fooled by Mayor Rahm opening a selective enrollment high school in the area that used to be Cabrini Green for mostly white people and thinking he could get away with it by naming it after Barack Obama. D, I never said... That the people of the city of Chicago are so stupid, they'll fall for it. But Mayor Rahm and his allies, they thought you were stupid enough to fall for it. Good for you, Chicago. You proved them wrong. Love it when Chicago would show how smart. (laughs) Anyway, I just saw this, Dean. I just shook my head. Cabrini Green residents were promised 2,500 construction jobs. They got a 40. Wow. D, you were probably closer to the truth. They probably got four. Yeah. yeah. And there was just a mistake in the calculations. Anyway, we're going to uh, bring uh, 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 Alejandra, because you one tomorrow, BGA reporter, did the deep dive, uh, talk about this. Uh, this is an ongoing situation in the city of Chicago, ladies and gentlemen. And uh, there you go. Just started talking like Obama again. It's amazing how that works. Just talking about that high school and 
just start talking about like Obama again. <laughs> That's like forever lodged in your head now when you talk. I know. It's probably uh, Giannoulis's fault. By the way, he got the endorsement of the Democratic Party. We're going to reach out to Jacob Kaplan and see what he has to say about that. A lot of controversy over that. Uh, we have to reach out to all these different candidates. Uh, my beloved Democratic Party is uh, feuding with itself. Yeah, I saw that. I was going to bring that up uh, last week's news. There's something going on there with the uh, Cook County Democrats, right? Yeah, Cook County Democrats, uh, the uh, Democratic Party of Cook County, follow me on this, Dean, uh, has come to the decision. We're going to ask Monroe about this, get his thoughts on this. Uh, it's decided that any candidate who receives their endorsement or uh, uh, seek, seeks their endorsement of the Democratic Party. So just think of this, ladies and gentlemen, all the committeemen from each ward and township uh, in Cook County get together and they decide which candidates they're going to endorse it's for things like sheriff, for things like assessor and judges, et cetera, and so forth. So for some races, it's a very important endorsement because as I was just talking about, a lot of voters, you know, they don't listen to the Ben Jarowski show. They don't read the newspapers. They're not really paying attention. So like, as I explained with Mayor Daly, a lot of them just were supported Daly because their parents liked them. And in case of, let's say, Cook County Assessor, they may just support whoever the party endorses for Cook County Assessor. They don't know who's paying attention to Cook County Assessor other than Donald Trump, who manipulated the system to get a tax break on the Trump Towers. So very important, the endorsement uh, of, for, of the Democratic Party of Cook County, particularly for down ballot positions. Uh, and so what they did was they said, OK, if you're going to seek our endorsement, you have to pledge to support all the candidates that we endorse. I, I, you know, on one hand, I'm like, nah, I'm not feeling that at all. I mean, why should I endorse someone? What if I don't like that other person? You know, what if I have a person that I really like that's running for sheriff and I'm seeking your endorsement for, let's say, I don't know, clerk. You know, why should I be bound just because I'm seeking your endorsement to endorse whoever you tell me to endorse for sheriff? I mean, what about liberty, freedom and all that? On the other hand, if you're going to have anything resembling party discipline, and this is the argument uh, that I'm sure Jacob Kaplan will use when he comes in the show. If you're going to have anything like party discipline, you have to support the party. If you want the, if you want something from the party, you got to give something back. So, so quid pro quo. Classic Chicago, but sounds like the Godfather or something. It is like the Godfather. Yes, you got to take care. If you're going to go to the Godfather, you got to do what the Godfather wants. You're going to take some from him. You got to give some. That's how it works. That's how it works in the Ben Jarowski show. Yeah. Dennis goes, I, I need some time off. I go, uh, what do you get from me, son? <laughs> anyway, so um, Gene Lewis got the endorsement. You know, I've been, I've said this already. I'm kind of leaning toward David Moore. It's very early. Should probably listen to all the candidates. Pat Dow running as well. Alderwoman Pat Dow from the third ward. David Moore, alderman of the seventeenth ward. Uh, and so a lot, a lot of uh, rancor, a lot of discord in the Democratic Party these days because the candidates think it's unfair for the Democrats uh, to start enforcing rules like this, Godfather-like rules. If you support me, if I, you want my support, you got to give me your support. Let's see what Monroe has to say about that. Uh, we're going to take a little break, and when we come back, Monroe Anderson will be with us. Stick around, everybody. Monroe Anderson has joined us. Monroe Anderson has joined us. You're looking very good today, Monroe. Welcome yeah. back. 
Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I just finished lunch. That's why I'm a little late. Ooh. Oh, okay. You're, that means you're fortified and ready to go. Yes. Uh, and I have plenty of national uh, issues to talk to you about. Plenty of Trump news, plenty of Biden news, Democrats, Republicans acting horrible. But before we get that, uh, I got to talk to you, ask you about your thoughts on this story that I've been talking about already for a while. And uh, uh, this is um, Alejandra Casino from the BGA, Better Government Association. I want to give her another shout out. She'll be on the show tomorrow. And her story uh, by the, that came out in the BGA, Better Government Association, uh, says, and here's the headline, Monroe. This is the headline. And you'll appreciate this because Monroe Anderson lives uh, on the north side of Chicago, not far from the old Cabrini Green complex. And we've been talking about Cabrini Green a lot while you're eating lunch. Not far from the old Cabrini Green uh, complex. Uh, that's where Monroe lives. And he's lived there long enough to remember when Cabrini Green was there. Thousands yeah, and thousands of it's people. Still, some of it's still there. Some, very little. Very little. Yeah, yeah the low rises. The low rises. So in the mid-90s, Mayor Daly, uh, Richard M. Daly, uh, and the powers that be decided it would be a good idea uh, to get uh, Cabrini Green torn down and get those people off of that land because it's very valuable land and uh, should be re- redeveloped, make a fortune for developers and bring in a few a little more in taxes for the city. So um, to get the, the residents out, they had to give them all kinds of promises to let them think that it was really in their interest that uh, the city was tearing down Cabrini Green. Right. So here's the headline That's on this. What the city does. So here's the headline, Monroe. This is the story. So uh, Cabrini Green residents were promised 2,500 construction jobs. They got 40. They were promised 2,500. They got 40. And I call today's show 40 Jobs and a Mule Wednesday. Uh, They're and, still uh, waiting on the mule. <laughs> They're still, waiting. they're still waiting on the mules and the acres. So Monroe, that yeah. leads me to this question. You've been around politics a long time. You're around Chicago a long time. Should a black resident of the city of Chicago believe anything that a mayor or a mayor's uh, aides or assistants, uh, any promises they offer when it comes to economic development? Your thoughts, Monroe Anderson. You rich, you remember when Richard M. Daly said something about being a witch mayor? He was, yes. he was about to say white. <laughs> he thought about it. <laughs> it turns to wet. <laughs> they should never ever believe a wet mayor. Uh, Bill, Bill Ware, who was Harold Washington's chief of staff, yes, told me that a black mayor could never ever get rid of Cabrini Green or Robert Taylor Holmes, because it would be a death knell if they did. Uh, with a wet mayor, eh, not, <laughs> not so difficult. <laughs> so, I, I remember and, that. And, he was, and, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, and, and the, the, there was some agreement with the federal government on how long those buildings had to be up before they could raise them. And they raised them as soon as they could. Oh, they couldn't yeah. get there any quicker, any sooner. No, that was, uh, I talked about this already, a very cynical moment in Chicago's history 
they tore down Cabrini Green, said they were doing it on behalf of the residents, said there was going to be jobs. And I've watched this. They throughout. also said there was going to be housing. Yeah, that, well, that's also, yeah, that's another part. Yeah, because Grace, Grace and Mitchell was working on that um, and unsuccessfully. Uh, yeah, and uh, there's a larger story uh, about the housing component that Alejandro Casino wrote, which we'll get in tomorrow. So uh, that's the deep dive. Cabrini Green, A History of Broken Promises, uh, is the, the story about the housing promises broken. But that just this headline, Monroe, it just kills me. 25,000 jobs were promised. They got 40. Uh, then that says, and then if you, you wonder why the voting, um, they consider it a good turnout if 35% of the people vote. Right. I'm sorry. There's right. people don't see any, they're so cynical because government is so cynical in to them. You know? Yeah. Well, my, my guess is that the um, captains of the universe in Chicago vote. <laughs> Yes, uh, they vote and they contribute. Yes, uh, yeah, and, and they they own a bunch of politicians. Oh, did I say that? Yes, you did. In fact, that reminds me uh, of the email. This one is just, uh, that was sent uh, to Rahm Emanuel by one of his uh, wealthy supporters, outraged that Rahm had uh, not been tougher in closing more schools or laying off or firing more workers just so mad that his tax dollars were going to areas that he didn't live in and did not directly benefit him. And Rom wrote back assuring him, nobody has been harder on retired workers, health benefits than me. Dude is bragging about like cutting some geezers healthcare, but you're right. They cut that healthcare for the old geezers, but they only delivered 40 jobs. All right. Having said all that, this is the insanity of me. I still believe that it's in the better interests of humanity to support the Democratic Party at this crucial moment, even though the evidence on the local level is just one broken promise after another. Disheartening series of broken promises, Monroe. I believe that the Republican Party is such a force of evil right now. Yes, exactly. It is. And not only that, but the local Democratic Party's motto is try to do no harm. <laughs> Whereas... <laughs> well, the Republicans is Mussolini was a good guy. Yeah. By the way, before we leave local politics completely, you and I talked about this yesterday. We didn't talk about it this morning. Uh, so Darren Bailey, who's running for the uh, Republican nomination as governor to face off against um, J.B. Pritzker, announced, uh, I think it was Monday, I can't lost track of time, Monroe, uh, that his running mate would be Stephanie Trussell, who used to be a, uh, I don't know, maybe she still is a, a talk show host and team, very uh, conservative. Radio, radio talk Radio, show. radio. WLS. WLS. And, yeah, I don't uh, think she is anymore, but I'm not sure. My memory is, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, that she was a Facebook friend of yours and that she yes. would engage you. Uh, she would come at you. She's far right. Yes. Conservative. Uh, this, 2016, she wasn't for Trump, but she just quickly jumped aboard that bandwagon. Uh, and, she, and, and you and she would engage in Facebook uh, exchanges. Is my memory correct in that, Monroe? Uh, 
we we had wall war, Facebook wall wars, where I, I she would come up with something stupid, and I would go troll her. So, what were sort of the things? Some of the things that she would come up with. Uh, she frequently and and thoughtlessly referred to the Democrats as the plantation and, and wondered aloud on her Facebook wall why um, blacks were on the plantation, to which I replied to her that the Democrats had elected a black as president, that the um, lieutenant governor of Illinois was a black woman, that the uh, attorney general of Illinois was a black man, that the president of the Cook County um, board was a black woman, that the mayor of the city of Chicago was a black woman. And so that was some plantation and that the Republicans really had done so much better. I, I, I understood her point. Uh, and uh, did she have a comeback to that? No, 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 no. So what happens when you fight with Republicans of any race, creed, or color is they repeat the nonsense they got off of Facebook. I'm not, you know, Facebook and Fox. And as talking points that if you, you examine them for uh, two seconds, you decide that it's crazy. And so when you challenge them with the truth, then they have no combat. Yeah. They disappear. And, and you can do that on Facebook. If you, if you don't have an answer, you just don't answer. Yeah, I, I uh, the the plantation metaphor uh, is a powerful metaphor that applies in many different uh, inst- instances, uh, but it goes back and forth. Like you could just as easily say Clarence Thomas is on the Republican uh, plantation. You know what I'm saying? I mean, you, uh, uh, Clinton, no, Cl- Clarence Thomas is Stephen. <laughs> Oh, Jango. <laughs> he, he, he's running the plantation. He's not on it. <laughs> he, he's making sure that the white man is, is okay. <laughs> the views and opinions of Monroe Anderson do not necessarily reflect those of the Ben Jarofsky show. Stephen uh, is one of the greatest characters, in my opinion, of recent years. What a powerful uh, uh, performance by Samuel L. Jackson in that one. Uh, all right, uh, Monroe, you mentioned Fox, so let's get down uh, to some of the um, compelling national news. Uh, and I've been uh, really eager to talk to you about this now for a couple of days. Uh, papers are filled with stories about emails uh, that were delivered to Mark Meadows, the former chief of staff to Donald Trump on January 6th. And uh, this is a windy, twisty road of a story. Uh, Democratic uh, Congress people and a couple of Republicans. Let's point out Kinzinger and uh, Lynn Ch- uh, Cheney. Liz Cheney are uh, who was an attack dog. Oh yeah, <laughs> and um, I said that I just I still can't get over the fact that it's a a Cheney uh, attacking going after him. 
uh, my whole life I've been reviling the Cheneys and that right. really a moment in time where well, as it turns out, they are true patriots, <laughs> not, 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 not paper patriots. Yeah. So anyway, um, uh, Mark Meadows had agreed uh, to cooperate with the Democratic uh, investigators, the congressional investigators, I should say. Uh, and then he backed off. We'll get into all that. But before he backed off, he had sent some emails over that he received. Uh, he sent 9,000 pieces of uh, documents, 9,000 documents. Wow. Among them were the emails. emails. Yeah. All right. So talk about the emails. They uh, These are emails that were sent to Mark Meadows, who was at the time Donald Trump's chief of staff. People horrified by what what they saw happening on their TV, much like Monroe. When, as I've said many times, it was a Wednesday that that went down, and I was watching Monroe's face. He was at the TV on in the background, and horror. his face was uh, showing complete horror at the sight of MAGA people uh, taking over the Capitol. Uh, let's talk a little bit. What uh, what what struck you, Monroe, about some of these uh, emails that Mark Meadows released? You know, what struck me was that it was amazing, but I wasn't surprised. At the same time, I, as, as you know, I've been saying that I've been talk, I've been truth Trump truth telling about Trump since the beginning. And so it didn't surprise me that um, he was staging this coup, that he was not interested in stopping the insurrectionists, that they were his people. Although I was amazed, not, not surprised, but amazed that the anchors of the, the talk shows at Fox were sending him messages saying, stop this. And then on the air, of course, they were saying the, the just the opposite, which is interesting. You know, they, they were the ones who came up with this. Well, it was um, Antifa and Black Lives Matter in disguise. <laughs> <laughs> you know, those black nationalists wearing white face pretending to be angry white men or something. But, but they were saying that. And the thing that was really, really interesting to me was that Donnie Jr. sent an email or a message. Some of these were phone text messages. They, they, they weren't all, but he sent some sort of communication. I think it was through a text message on the telephone saying, um, cut this shit out or something to that effect. And you got to wonder what type of relationship do they have where he has to tell his daddy to stop doing something through his daddy's chief of staff. Mm. Instead of just calling him and saying, Dad, what's going on here? You sure you want to do it this way? Well, that's there's two uh, thoughts that pop to my mind. Uh, I got to come back to the, the double messages that the Fox anchors are sending, but it's similar to Donald Trump Jr. What it suggests to me about the relationship in Roe, and I'll throw this to you, is, get your thoughts 
is that uh, Don Jr. was afraid to confront his father with the truth. Yeah. Uh, so he went back door. So, yeah. Uh, he was afraid that his father um, would just like call him a wuss or a pussy or a wimp or whatever the word he would have for him uh, right. and, and would say, you know, you're the, yeah, I can't believe I named, gave you my name, you little worm or something like that. He lived in fear of that. So he went to Mark metal. Yeah. <laughs> well, working out orders at Mark metals. Go ahead. Right. right. Exactly. Well, one thing there, there, there's a story that I came across a week or two ago where when Junior was born, uh, somebody suggested that he be Don Junior. And Daddy Junior's said, well, what if he grows up to be a loser? <laughs> Do I want my name on him? <laughs> and well as, well, as we know, he finally, Daddy, named Don, Don. And the thing is, Don is a loser. <laughs> so, so daddy's premonition was right. And you're not supposed to have a favorite child, but daddy's favorite is daughter Ivanka. And emails or texts from Ivanka were noticeably absent. Am I correct on that? Yeah. I don't recall. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, noticeably. Noticeably absent. And then uh, another revelation from Mark Meadows is that it was Ivanka who suggested in the middle of the summer of 2020, which Monroe, it just 2020, the summer of 2020 seems just like a distant nightmare. You know what I'm saying? Uh, if you think back to the summer yeah. of 2020, all the discord yeah, ver vers versus the very close nightmare we have now. Yeah, right now. Yes, <laughs> the nightmare has been going on since 2015. Uh, but in the in the summer of 2020, a distant nightmare as opposed to the current nightmare. Uh, Donald Trump decided uh, that he was going to stage a moment of great courage. And I have all that in quotes, uh, which, uh, uh, included him leaving the white house and walking across the street, uh, where protesters had gathered, uh, protesting the murder of George Floyd. Uh, and he was going to clear the uh, street of all the protesters, tear gas them if necessary, and then stand in front of the cameras with a Bible. Like he yes. represented, God, I don't know. He was God's messenger. I don't know what ultimately his goal was, but you mean the Bible he held upside down? Yes, that Bible. Okay. Yeah, that Bible. Okay, I just want to, I don't want to mix it up with any other Bible. No, yeah, I'm like not, any other moment. I'm trying to get, not give Bibles a bad name. Uh, a Bible that he held upside down uh, and has clearly never read. I don't think uh, Donald Trump is much for reading uh, Bible stories. Anyway, um, no, he's he's more of a mind cough type of guy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but, and, uh, but only in the English translation, of course. Anyway, um, so Avaka, it turns out, uh, was it was the one who came up with that idea. So maybe that's why he likes her. She thinks bold and big, uh, which is interesting, Monroe. Help me understand Avaka's role in the White House, because she's also the person that, like, Lori Lightfoot met with. 
when Lori Lightfoot came to uh, Washington in the early days of her administration and had a meet and greet with White House officials. She's sort of like the point person for liberals. And yet somehow or other, she doesn't. Don't don't make that association for moderates. (laughs) Liberals, no, 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 no. Well, yeah, because I I don't think um, Lori Lightfoot any place but uh, never mind. I won't go into that. No, go there. <laughs> no, 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 Something good was going to come out of that. <laughs> Something good. <laughs> you were going to say you don't think Lori Lightfoot any place but Chicago would be considered a liberal. That's what I think you were going to say. Is that right? Uh, you put those words in my mouth, man. <laughs> yeah. And you kept them there. Um, so, uh, yeah, so Ivanka somehow or other plays two roles. Uh, she meets with people like Lori Lightfoot, and she maintains uh, her father's love and respect. Very bizarre situation uh, the, in, in the Trump family. Ivanka uh, is the uh, warrior Trump. Did you ever see Chinatown, the movie Chinatown? Oh, oh, only about 30 times in my okay. life. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Are you suggesting Monroe? <laughs> Did you see the look uh, on my face? No. I, I just wanted to know if you saw the movie and, and did you follow the plot? Yes. <laughs> but other than that, I'm not saying anything. All right, we'll just leave that one alone. I think you're alluding to a relationship between uh, characters played by John Houston and Faye Dunaway, and we'll leave it at that. He's my uh, father. No, she's my my sister. She's my daughter. Uh, So, all right, going back to Fox, what game are they playing? Help us out here, Monroe. Uh, On air, they're praising uh, or... Yeah, that one's easy. Go ahead. It really is. On air, because they have, they, they and Trump, have the same constituency. Trump nuts. Crazy Republicans. Batshit crazy Republicans. And they have to say and do batshit crazy things to keep the Fox does, to keep the viewers coming back and back and back. Um, they love the, their viewers love the way Fox and Trump lies. So they on the air, they had to come up with a, a cover story. Whereas when they were watching it unfold, because um, they're not as smart as I am, but they're not as dumb as their, their their viewers are, they realized that the insurrection was not a good look politically. So they contact him and say, "Tell him you got to cut this out." Yeah, stop this. But when it was time to talk to his people, then it was not his people doing it. It was Antifa and Black Lives Matter disguised as Trump people doing it. Because I had fights with um, on Facebook with some of my wing nuts, my Trump nuts at the time, where they were telling me, that it was Antifa and and Black Lives Matter um, out there doing the rioting, and you know, and, and this is like a live thing. I'm thought, 
are you nuts? I said, they're carrying Trump flags. They're wearing Trump T-shirts. They, 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 it didn't make any sense whatsoever. But they believed it because uh, you, you, have to, you have to have a blank mind to be a Trump nut as far as I'm concerned. And uh, this also points out uh, another theme uh, is broader than I than I earlier thought. And we talked about this in the past, uh, that the Republican Party is controlled by MAGA. Uh, and Republican candidates have realized that. And with the exception of Liz Cheney and uh, Adam Kinzinger and a, f- a handful of others, uh, and Kinzinger is not even running for re-election. Uh, they've capped. Cheney the probably isn't either. Before it's beef by the time we get to uh, uh, midterm time. Who, who do you, who'd you say won't be running Cheney, either? Cheney, she may not be running. Well, I don't know. She may be starting a new party. You think so? I don't I'm know. Not. Yeah, no, but she is. She is going so balls out. I mean, it's like it's against everything that's going on in the Republican Party, and so it, 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 it could be um, there was a suicide by cop. She's committing suicide by truth, and so I, you know, I can't see her even being a candidate. Wow. Well, she. Um... We'll see. Yeah, we uh, we she won't be a Democrat. That's no, she, she won't be a Democrat. She's right. not a Democrat in any right. Right. She's a Republican. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the old, and, old line Republican before they went crazy. Yeah, and I was no fan of Republicans ever. No. Okay, no. no. But this is a form of insanity that's even beyond uh, what I'm used to. But all right. So uh, what I was going to say was that MAGA controls the Republican Party. And so Republicans toe the MAGA line and they just pretty much read the script. So like, for instance, if a Republican congressman uh, as just happened, threatens AOC uh, to like to kill AOC, Congresswoman right. uh, Ocasio-Cortez, the Democrats uh, move to censor him. Republicans, with the exception of Liz Cheney and a handful of others, vote against it. It's like they're not deviating from MAGA. And you know, what's really bad is that 25 percent of Republicans, they they did a poll, 25 percent think that it would be justified to have an armed revolution against the country. Twenty five percent. Yes. And that's a lot. You know, I I forget the number, but it, 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 it amounts to something like 13 million people or something. So that. That could be problematic. See, that, but, that's why. Yeah, but I've, I've had fights with my wing nuts about that too, and you know they say they try and take my guns, they try and do this. Oh, you know, I got my guns, and my response to them is, "But we have drones." <laughs> Monroe. Uh, just to point out again to where we began this show where Democrats break the promise to create 2,500 jobs and come up with 40 instead, as opposed to a Republican Party uh, dedicated to armed revolution. 
Uh, I mean, you know what I'm saying? They're, yeah, right, exactly. It's like, wow, I don't get a lot of choice. Not much of a choice, but it is a, a choice. Yeah, and what's uh, happening? Yeah, yeah, and what's happening now is the Proud Boys are infiltrating on the local level. They're they're going to um, school board meetings where the um, Republicans have gotten all worked up about having to wear masks so they don't. Um, in fact, their 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 um, friends and family, and they go there and they say semi sem, semi. Sorry, Miss Cheney yeah. calling you. Yeah, right. Exactly. Semi. This this is uh, Allied Insurance. They they call every twice a day or something. They're um, bad people. But anyway, probably Republicans. Uh, but, but anyway, they are infiltrating. They're, they're recruiting people on a local level. Yeah. And they're running people. They're talking people. The Republicans are doing this also um, to get on school board so they can change it, so they can get rid of that critical race theory that the kindergartners are learning <laughs> Yeah, by the way, I just want to point out again, uh, I guess this is contrast Chicago uh, to Republican Day and the Ben Jarofsky show. Uh, the powers of being the city resisted uh, for years and years and years having an elected school board. Uh, and they finally were forced uh, in this last legislative session to go along with it because the votes were against Mayor Lori Lightfoot and her uh, corporate allies. Uh, whereas the Republican Party, Monroe, uses the platform elected school board to uh, fire up their base, recruit new members uh, to their team. Right. uh, And to try test run their ideological ideas. And I have ideas in quotes uh, and uh, win over voters and move the conversation. Right. And again, it's another example of the difference between Republicans and Democrats, Democrats uh, in the city of Chicago, they try to stifle democracy. They discourage people uh, from getting involved, whereas Republicans uh, actively use. Well, you, you know, we can, well, we really what, what, yeah, how that developed was the Koch brothers 25 years ago figured out that it's cheaper to buy politicians on a local level and they could do it without any any notice. No, no headlines, no lead stories. They could buy, buy, buy out people on a local level. And so now this is why we have uh, Republicans in control of things where they really shouldn't be. Because they got, they, they, the money was invested in them and they had a long-term plan. Same with the Supreme Court, which we both know. Yep. Uh, and that both are uh, paying off. They also had a long-term plan against unions yes. uh, and uh, collective bargaining rights. And we saw that make a, uh, great strides in the state of Illinois in their efforts to do away with collective bargaining rights when they, when Bruce Rauner was elected in 2014 and he failed and was ousted in 2018. But uh, trust me to tell you folks, they're not done with that one yet. Uh, no. They're probably why we haven't talked, Monroe, about the uh, organizing efforts that have been going on at Starbucks around the country uh, and the movement and Amazon. 
Good God, Monroe. I wasn't going to even talk to you about, but Amazon, what a company. Like, there's a freaking tornado coming down. Right. Take your phones. Don't leave. Stay in the job. I'm like, you guys are out of your freaking minds. Yeah. Except I'm, I'm, I'm not going to speak ill of Amazon because Bezos gave Van Jones $100 million to do with as he pleases. And I'm, I'm going... Hey, Mr. Bezos. Okay. <laughs> he gave it to Van Jones. Like Van Jones. Monroe. <laughs> oh, my God. We're all on one plantation or another. Right. Uh, as I said, all of us. Right. Uh, now, I, I'm joking about that. But yes. now, Bezos is a very interesting character. He is very interesting. Well, I'd say he's got some outdated ideas. Uh, when it comes to employee relations, I'll just put it that way. Right. Uh, to tell people they got to stay in the job while a tornado's bearing down. Right. And they're not like allowed to have their cell phones. Yeah, they don't have their cell phone. Man. Yeah, they don't. So they 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 couldn't. Nobody could call them and tell them tornado was coming. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it's. Uh... And but but that this is capitalism. In, in, in America in general, because the same thing happened at the chicken factory. I mean, the candle, the candle factory. Yeah, the candle the same, factory. Yeah, in, in Kentucky, the same thing happened where uh, these people were forced to work yeah. instead of being called and told, okay, it's gotta, this is not good. You, why don't you take the night off? And, but this guy, the owner, was focused on making his money. And, All right, wait, no, bro, I went up far afield. I'm no, going to come back to where I was going to get your thoughts on this one. So I said that Republican candidates are now completely controlled by MAGA, and they, there's no bones about it. And now what these emails and texts to Mark Meadows reveal is that Fox is as well. And yes. so as you pointed out, the Fox announcers are going TV uh, and put out propaganda to try to divert your uh, – to soften the blow of the image of – Trump supporters being so lawless, uh, but behind the scenes, they were sending these uh, anguished emails and texts to Mark Meadow. Again, afraid to go to Trump, going to Mark Meadow. You go tell that insane man. Nobody wants to go to Trump. Well, yeah, well, see, they pissed Trump off when they announced that he lost uh, the uh, yeah, yeah, the the vote. And he was so upset with them because that wasn't what they were supposed to be doing. You know, the thing, a couple of things. Trump, he, he appointed all these judges that he was he thought would be his employees. You know, he gives them lifetime jobs, <laughs> and he thinks they're going to be work for him. And so he appointed them, and they are all ruling against him. These these judges. And it makes it difficult for the Republicans, poor dears, because it's hard to say that, well, these are some activist le uh, liberal judges that are making these rulings. These are some Trump judges who happen to believe in the judicial system. Yeah. Uh, all right. Uh can, can, if, let me let me do this because I was going in this direction. Go ahead. And, and it's it, it it could get me in trouble, but I really have to say this. Go ahead. For 
20 years or so, I thought that getting rid of communism was bad. Not because communism was a good thing, but what communism did was it kept capitalism in check. Whenever capitalists in America would go too far, the communists would point to it and try and make it an example. And then they would back them up. They wouldn't go so far. Once the wall went down, the capitalists have run amok. This is why they've destroyed the unions. Um, they haven't, the salaries haven't kept up. I mean, it's all these horrible things that have happened. And we're getting some, we're getting the rise of unionism again because finally the pendulum has swung too far. But the uh, capitalists are fighting very hard to try to um, keep their advantage. The rich wow, people. that's a that is a theory you've never shared with me. Yeah, yeah, no, because I was, you know, I'm not a I'm a capitalist. I, you know, I, I have a I have I've been in the stock market since the '80s, and so I'm not a communist. I mean, I I have some socialist ideas. For example, I don't think anybody in a country as rich as America should be starving to death. Uh, uh, you know, that would be uh, the bare minimum. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly, right, exactly. You know, I don't think they should, I think they're terrible, they use this, the food challenge, the, they have some term to make it sound like it's not as bad as it is. Well, but anyway. You know, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, but anyway, I think that um, everybody ought to be able to have health. I mean, there are certain basics that I believe. So I am not a communist by any stretch of the imagination. But I think that capitalism has run amok. Well, um, a lot to follow up here. Uh, first of all, the way our country is structured these days, you have to play at capitalism if you want to take care of yourself as you grow old. Right. Because with the exception of a, a handful of professions, mostly uh, government employees, there are no pensions in this country. And, and I, I talk to people who are young conservatives. I'm like, don't get old. Right. <laughs> you know, stay young forever because, right. you know, we, it's just a different reality. And you and I know this, Monroe, because we've not followed that advice. We've gotten old or older. Yeah. And, right. The reality is that you have to come up with your own pension system. Right. Uh, because this country has revolted against a pension system, and it's revolted against the pension system because the wealthiest people in this country want to hoard the money as opposed to putting it out uh, into a common fund that would help people other than themselves. Right. So they'll, they'll back Social Security because they're getting something out of it. But if you have a pension system for someone like Monroe Anderson for the days he worked at, let's say, Johnson Publications or Newsweek, they're they're against that. Yes. You know what I'm saying? Well, uh, I don't get anything out of that. What do I care if Monroe is eating, uh, you know, soup out of a tin can if he's lucky? You know what I mean? So. Yeah. No, that's it, all. Th th this is all Reaganism, literally. It's, it's uh, the trickle-down theory, all that. I mean, uh, America went down the wrong road when, when we got Reagan. 
and um, Reagan gave them the the right wing, the words and the platform yeah. to do it. You, you know, I was I was thinking about this, uh, Monroe, and you and I had a conversation yesterday, which we should do a whole show about but there are days of working for Ebony for John Johnson, who was the epitome of a capitalist. Yes. Uh, and I was thinking about this moment that's in the John Thompson book. And I talked about it with you last week. I, I urge everybody to check this book out. John Thompson, longtime basketball coach, a man of many ideas. Uh, and he expresses them very clearly. Uh, and he, uh, in the 1970s, uh, cut a deal with Phil Knight of um, Nike. This is when Nike, before Nike had really taken off. Uh, and he agreed, Thompson, that uh, Georgetown would be a Nike school. In other words, they would all be outfitted in Nike as opposed to Adidas or Converse, uh, Converse All-Stars, what have you. Uh, and so they began wearing Nike shoes and Nike warm-ups. Uh, and then they became a very powerful force in college basketball. It's like this all-black team uh, with a, a black coach uh, and uh, black teenagers began wearing uh, Georgetown uh, shoes and uh, jerseys, et cetera, and so forth. And as you know, Monroe, uh, black teenagers kind of lead the way when it comes to determining in many ways what white people will uh, purchase. They they dictate the culture. They dictate the culture. So who made a fortune out of that? Nike. And who also made a fortune out of that? John Thompson, because he was uh, signed on with Nike early on. And at some and point, Michael Jordan. And Michael Jeffrey Jordan. <laughs> yeah. And Spike Lee. And because he did the commercials. And at some yeah. point, uh, Jesse Jackson, Reverend Jesse Lewis Jackson, uh, led uh, like a counter offense against Nike, demanding that they uh, donate more money to black community, hire more black people, create jobs in the uh, black communities, et cetera, and so forth. And if they didn't do that, he would lead a boycott of Nike products. And there, John Thompson describes this situation in a hotel room. I'm not making this up where Michael Jordan, Spike Lee and John Thompson meet, representing Nike <laughs> met with Jesse Lewis Jackson. Yeah. I don't know, it blew my mind. And like, that's like capitalism is a real, is real. You know, they were meeting and, with Jesse Jackson on behalf of Nike. Yeah. And the thing is, uh, Jesse um, described himself as the tree shaker or the jelly makers. And so Jesse's whole game is that, uh, has been that he makes money for blacks gets blacks into better into capitalism and they contribute to him as a result of it. Well, he's, I don't blame him. He's like an agent. Yeah. I know. I know. No, that's what I'm saying. That's his symbol. Right? Yeah, I understand. Yeah. yeah right. I'm, I, I'm not jumping I'm not on blaming the him. I'm just describing the situation. Yeah. You know, he's to, like an agent. You got to yeah, pay your agent. You know, when I worked at channel two, uh, John at, at, at one point, Jonathan Rogers was the president of CBS, black man. And as president, I thought this was great. But at some point, it occurred to me that he had some other white men higher up the food chain that he had to report to. And so he was 
in charge ish instead of in charge. <laughs> and and that's how America still works. Well, uh, that's another theme that John uh, Thompson talks about a great deal, like the people higher up uh, the food chain. But one thing he made clear, and, I, and Monroe, I really urge you to read the book because it's a fascinating book. Even I don't agree with everything that John Thompson uh, said or viewed. I find it fascinating uh, is that he made it clear that he was in charge of his little universe which is the Georgetown basketball team. He was yeah. in charge. No yeah. one else. Don't go to anyone. Don't go to a white man. I'm in charge. And I kind of like that. You know, yeah. I, I had to respect uh, John Thompson tremendously. I urge everybody to check that book out. I want to find Yeah, he was in charge of his little segment. Yes. He wasn't in charge of the university. You know, he couldn't get more black professors in. He couldn't get more black students in. I mean, he was in charge of what he was in charge of. And there is yeah. a difference. There is a big difference. Yeah. But he was, uh, as the person in charge of his little universe, he did get him to back off on Proposition 48. And this is an ancient story that most people will for long forgotten. But there was a moment in time in the late 80s uh, where the NCAA, the Basketball uh, Association, or the College, Sports College Association, uh, put in more stringent regulations regarding the test scores you had to achieve uh, as an incoming uh, high college student in order to be uh, eligible to play. And so if yeah. you didn't score a certain uh, point total in your SAT, for instance, you could not play. Uh, and John Thompson revolted against that. He thought that was hugely unfair uh, to incoming black students uh, and he talks at length about this in the book. And I agree with him. I agree with him at the time. And I agree with him now. And he got, I got to give him this. He walked off the court, Monroe. I, you probably remember that. I know yeah. you're not a huge basketball fan, but you probably remember when John Thompson walked off the court. Oh, yeah. And he but, got the NCAA. My, my being a race man, as, as, as you have tagged me, when it becomes racial, I pay attention to it. Otherwise. Yes, not much. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, yes, All right, so, uh, just briefly Monroe, uh, did, when you were working for John Johnson over at Ebony, yes, did, did that, did he ever try, uh, John John, of course, legendary, legendary, uh, publisher, the Ebony empire, jet magazine <laughs> made, a, made a fortune, uh, off of, uh, black readers by and large. He knew his audience. Right. I, did he ever try to uh, inculcate the staff into the tenets of capitalism? Like try to like he had all these like I assume all you guys are liberals or lefties who are doing the writing and the editing, etc. Uh, did he ever try to uh, preach capitalism to you and convert you to? Uh... No. Now, now, let me tell you what he did. <laughs> you worked for him. You talk about plantations. That was a plantation. To the, um, a couple of his employees, long-time older employees, opened up a nightclub, and he made them shut it down because they worked for him, and he didn't want their attention diverted on some business of their own. Um, there, um, it was um, Herb Temple who was the charge of um, graphics, an art for the magazine. And um, I can't remember who his partner was. 
But he told him, either you work for me or you work for yourself, but you don't work for both. And another really ridiculous example of that is Lillian Cartwright was a salesperson. She sold, she got, she went out and got advertising for the magazine. That was her job. She's an artist also. So she started making jewelry that she would sell on the side. And he told her, you work for me or you work for yourself, but you don't do both. Wow. Right. So, no, he, he was a capitalist for self, but that was it. Wow. That's deep, man. It's like you have off work hours. Right. You know exactly. what I mean? Or would that be taking time from him? Right. Exactly. And also in terms of of the plantation mentality, if you could come up with a means of um, supporting yourself, you wouldn't have to jump every time he said jump or duck every time he said duck. I mean, you could be a little more independent. And he would have none of that. And in, in fact, after I left there, um, a few years later, I was at the Tribune, and he was speaking at um, um, God, where, Printer's Row. He's speaking at that new place. It was new then at Printer's Row. And I was in the audience as a Tribune reporter. And he started talking about how all these these blacks journalists whose careers he had launched, and a lot of us, uh, he, he didn't say us, he said, a lot of them weren't sufficiently appreciative of what he had contributed to their career. And he was staring at me the whole time he, he was talking about it. <laughs> because I, I, had managed, I had managed to succeed against the odds against what he had. But we should talk about it. What, what, we'll do a whole we, show on him. That's right. a fascinating story. The yeah. idea you would think he would uh, look up to you as an example of of someone who succeeded with his. And this is the difference. And I'm going to give a shout out again to John Thompson. John yeah. Thompson in his book talks at length of all the players uh, who were in his program and role played for him, followed his rules. Like they had to wear ties on the, in the bus. They, you know, there was a certain protocol they had to follow and it was John Thompson laid down the law and you're right. going to do it my way. Right. And when they left, they became successful. Uh, and he never looked at them the way John Johnson looked at you. He looked at them as a sign of his success. Their success right. showed that he was successful and he took right. he spends time in the book saying this player did this and this player did that. And it wasn't just in sports that they were successful. They were successful in business. It's you get what I'm saying that I, uh, I worked there for two years mm -hmm. and I loved working there because you got to meet all these famous black people and uh, you know, and it was nice. I mean, it was a camaraderie among the employees that was very nice overall. Uh, but when I decided I was getting the hell out of there was somebody told me that he said he would never make another Lerone Bennett. Because Lerone was too successful on his own. And, uh, you know, I'm thinking, well, I'm here to be a worker bee the rest of my life. I don't think so, you know. <laughs> Jerome Bennett was a historian, a writer, wrote books. Uh, he also wrote for uh, Johnson Publication for years. Yes. 
I remember reading until, it, 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 it until the end. Yeah. Yeah. But he also had it. You're right. He had uh side ventures, right? Lerone, better projects, you know? Yeah. He couldn't, he couldn't control the but Lerone was so loyal to him. It wasn't a problem. For example, I, I, when we were talking the other day, I told you that, um, the way he ran the business was work started at nine o'clock. If you got there nine Oh one, you were late and he would frequently be in the lobby to see who was late. And I can remember one day I'm headed to the office and Lerone is running down the street to make sure that he got there at nine o'clock. Wow. So it was, it was really interesting. Uh, yeah, there's a, a certain type of uh, boss who's uh, John Thompson was this way. If you were late for the bus, you're not on the bus. You get to the game your own way. Figure it out. Now, my, right. we're not waiting for you. Right. Uh, and uh, my, one of my first bosses in Chicago, the great John McDermott, uh, had some of that in him. May he rest in peace. Uh, he would dutifully note, but he wouldn't stand in a hallway, you know. Uh, but would would like he. Uh, if you weren't at your desk at nine or nine thirty, whenever we were supposed to be there, there'd be a note on your desk. You're late. You know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Johnny Mac. See, and I had come. I came to Ebony from the National Observer, which was the National Observer was so hang loose that if you decided you didn't feel like coming into the office, you wanted to write from home. You could write from home. They didn't care. They just wanted you to do the story. That's what I like about the reader. Always had that attitude. Just get the work done. Right. Where right. you are. Uh, all right. We have to close with this. This little piece of hypocrisy. I just have to share with you, Monroe, get your thoughts on it. Uh, I've, I've said many times that you cannot have an argument over principle with a member of the Republican Party because they have no principle. Everything is just a tactic and a tool in a larger fight. Uh, and this was on display in great uh, detail uh, today. I read this in the Washington Post. Senator Rand Paul, who views himself as a fiscal hawk, all right, uh, that no expenditure can be made uh, by the federal government unless it's offset by a cut in another program. Because if you ex- spend money that you hadn't budgeted to spend without cutting something you're adding to the deficit. He's a fiscal hawk. And uh, so for years when the feds, when there was some kind of catastrophe, let's say a storm, a hurricane in New Jersey or a hurricane generally in some area where Democrats live. Yeah. And the Democrat and, and the, the federal government responded by sending money, immediate emergency relief just to help people. FEMA, 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 yeah. he'd be outraged. And he'd get on the floor and he goes, this is irresponsible and I cannot tolerate this because this is expending money that has not, for which there has not been an allocation. It's adding to the federal deficit and that is a crisis and I cannot be for this. And I don't care about the severity of the people suffering. I care about this larger principle of adding to the federal deficit. Well, lo and behold, tornadoes, a series of tornadoes, whacked the hell out of his home state of Kentucky. And what's the first thing he does, Monroe? He writes a letter to Joe Biden saying, please send federal aid to Kentucky. And then when liberals call him out on it, he goes, you dastardly liberals, you're politicizing the situation while still mourning for the dead. I'm like, where were you? 
when they were mourning for the dead in New Jersey and Texas, et cetera, and so forth. You exactly. were more, you were politicizing the hell out of it. Man, these are the biggest bunch of frauds, Monroe. Go ahead. Oh, uh, he, no, he's no, he's a hypocrite. He, no, he's supposed to be like uh, a libertarian, and so he's espousing the libertarian point of view on these things. But it's 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 it's, it's only good when it's for somebody else or towards somebody else. You know, I, I mean, he's been fighting with Dr. Fauci uh, for last a year, year and a half over COVID, and he's, he has all these crazy um, ideas, and he's, he's been talking about how Fauci was either didn't know what he was talking about or was lying, and uh, and he got to, he got to a point where Fauci started fighting back. He's started in these Senate hearings. He, t- he, t- he just told him, you don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. He could have said yeah, he wrong, but he didn't. You know, he was diplomatic enough just to point out that what he was saying was wrong. Well, that's another example uh, of Republican hypocrisy, how they deal with the uh, uh, with COVID. It's all they politicize it from the get go. We've talked about that. Right. They want Trump to get all the credit for uh, creating the uh, <laughs> the the um, the shot. You know uh, the, the COVID vaccine, fighter vaccine, uh, vaccine but yeah. uh, they don't want to mandate it. And then, by the way, at the same time, they're not even sure it works. They're just all over the map. But you know what, uh, oh boy, Rand, if you were honest to your beliefs, your inter- you would tell the people of Kentucky. You would go to them while they were standing there amid the wreckage caused by this tornado, looking at what used to be the remains of their house, and when they said. A senator, we need federal aid to help us at this moment of crisis. You would say to them, I'm sorry, fellow Kentuckian. We cannot approve federal, ask for federal aid until we have offsetting cuts that would make sure we not add to the federal deficit. Because the single most important issue facing this country right now, more important than your shattered home and your homelessness and the fact you have no water or food, the more important than that is that we not add to the deficit. Man, I didn't see him making that argument. Did you? Uh, no, yeah, no, let me tell you, I, I, I've quit fighting with Trump nuts because he's gone and I, I'm glad. But I, every now and then I do go on and troll him or something. And I was on one of their walls trolling him. And to my surprise, Biden has killed more Americans uh, with COVID than Trump did. And what they're using is the number of people who have died since Biden came into office. And that's supposed to be his fault and not the fault of their following Trump's advice not to get a vaccination. And, and the virus is killing unvaccinated people. So it's just amazing to me. I uh, will close with this. I, I don't know what it's going to happen in the midterms because they've gerrymandered the hell out of the maps. Yeah. Uh, I have to see how it all uh, settles out. Who has gerrymandered more success, uh, more safe seats, Republicans or Democrats, okay? So I have to see that. Uh, but I still, Monroe, I said this in 2020, and I re- mean it now. I have a hard time believing that a majority of Americans could look at the shit show that is the Republican Party with all their deviant, their, all their whacked out, 
MAGA followers and say, this is the direction I want our country to take. I have a hard time believing that, Monroe. Right. I, I just. But the, the problem is um, the Democrats don't have enough attack dogs right now to, to, to fight them. It's the Democrats are being. Eh. In fact, <laughs> while you're bemoaning Rom being sent to Japan because of what he did or didn't do here in Chicago. I think they should have kept him here and just let, cut him loose and let Rom be Rom and, and be one of the attack dogs that, that would uh, do that. Listen, man, if Rom, if I saw any evidence that Mayor Rom was going to attack Republicans with the ferocity that he attacked, let's say, the Chicago Teachers Union, yeah. I'd say go get him. Yeah. But Rom, when he was given a national platform on the George Stephanopoulos show with his pal Christie, he spent yeah. more time bashing Bernie. And so I'm like, Rom is worthless as a. I, we need a real attack dog who goes after Republicans and just does not give an inch uh, and doesn't try to play that. Rom tried to play the bipartisan game. And that's why he was so proud of himself. He had Republican Senate support. He goes, well, look at all Republican senators. Because I, I know how to get get along with both sides. I'm going, you got support from these wing nuts who are trying to destroy our country because they don't have the courage to stand up to a mob and you're proud of that? So, I don't know, Monroe. Like I said, if he goes after Republicans the way he goes after Stacey Davis Gates, okay. Yeah. All right? You know, but, or Karen Lewis, more like Karen Lewis, my good friend. All right, Monroe, we're out of time, man. We could talk forever, and I didn't even get to the Florida Trump supporters who uh, were uh, are in jail for what voter fraud or well, they'll still be there next week. <laughs> yeah, we, we got time. We got time. Uh, all right, very good. And let's give a shout out, Monroe. Uh, I mentioned this before we went on the air. Is Steph Curry? Great Steph Curry uh, set a new record for most three points uh, baskets made in a career. And I happened to be watching the game last night. So even though he's not a bull, my hat, I tip my hat to the great Steph Curry. Yeah, but he's, 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 he's a class act. Yes. He's a class act. Yes. And uh, Donald Trump is a class clown. There you go. I just had to say There you go. Uh, all right. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Monroe Anderson. It's a blast talking to you as always. I also want to thank the man, the myth, the legend, the part of joy of all in Illinois, without whom this show would be possible. And as Monroe Anderson and Steph Curry will tell you, back home in Alton, they call him Dr. D, and the D stands for Demarvelous. Give yourself a raise. <laughs> take it out of petty cash. See you tomorrow, everybody. 